you can go to the last chapter, pretty much, in all the Gospels, with the exception of John. You can go to the second last chapter. Uh, because we are looking at the resurrection day of Jesus. So it's the 16th day of the first Jewish month in this particular year. Uh, it is the first day of the week, which for Jewish people starts Saturday night at sunset and continues till sunset on uh, Sunday. Uh, for our purposes, uh, Jesus seems to have been, shall we say, evaporated from the tomb before the sun came up, sometime before that. Because the ladies timed their arrival uh, to get there right as the sun was coming over the horizon. Uh, and by that time, the guards were already gone. Uh, what prompted the guards to leave? An angel appeared in the pre-light hours of Sunday morning, in the very dark of that early morning, and uh, rolled the stone away, and then jumped up on it, or maybe floated up on it, and sat on the stone uh, just for extra measure. And uh, what, what did the soldiers all do? They fainted from fear. They fainted away as dead men, it says. Uh, and uh, that takes an awful lot to scare uh, Roman soldiers, some of which had been veterans, others of which had certainly been through a lot of intense training. Uh, when they wake up, from fainting dead away. The angel is gone. Uh, the tomb is open, so the seal is broken. And uh, they check inside, and all that's left on the little platform, we're, we're using this kind of as our platform illustration. The only thing that's left on the platform is that uh, cocoon uh, that Jesus' body used to be in. It's just collapsed in on itself. Uh, and uh, so they're like freaked out, and they run off. Now they'll eventually go and report him. We'll remind ourselves about that later. Uh, but once they're gone, it starts getting light, and the ladies are now making their way to the garden. And it says that in every last one of the Gospels. Let's start in the Mark 16 passage. When the Sabbath was over, this is a reminder from the night before, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, that's actually Mary, the mother of Jesus as well, and Salome, that's Mary's sister, the mother of James and John, brought, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. So that happened Saturday night after the sun went down. Verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, or as the sun was rising, we would say, just as easily. They were saying to one another, who rolled the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So that's what they were concerned about. Uh, they didn't have any big strapping guys with them, because where are the apostles right now? They're hiding out. They're, they're not showing their faces anywhere. Uh, so they, in their hurry to get there first thing in the morning to, to finish the funeral preparations, they didn't think about, well, how are we going to get that big stone out of the way? That's going to be a problem for us. 
uh, until they're arriving. That's when they start thinking. Okay? Hmm. I wonder how we're going to get past that little hurdle. Now, the way that the garden was apparently arranged, it was probably a walled-in garden. Uh, in the um, Persian language, that's called a paradise. Paradise. Uh, and uh, it was something that was picked up from the Middle East and eventually gets used everywhere in the world. And that is, if you've got an area that you want to keep protected from roaming animals, what do you do? You put a fence around it. You put a wall around it. And so this garden is probably an olive garden. Not a restaurant. Uh, and uh, it has uh, working mechanisms in it for rendering olive oil. But it's also a very beautiful place. And so Joseph Marimathea, perhaps among others, has asked for permission, or perhaps purchased permission, to have their tombs carved into the little cliff that we know exists right along this ridge that we've been talking about, that I've been showing you pictures of, uh, so that there be at the perimeter of the garden. So they'll have a nice, beautiful uh, memorial place for their family and friends to come to. Uh, so these ladies come into the garden. They probably come through the gate, and they're making their way down the path back to the toony area. And at some point, they see that the tomb has already been opened. Now, immediately, if you were one of them, what would you think? Yeah, that's weird. Who's here? Who got here ahead of us? Uh, why is that tomb popped open like this? Okay? Yeah, well, they don't know anything about Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers were posted on the Sabbath day. So, these ladies know nothing about Roman soldiers. Nothing. All they know is, Friday afternoon, we were right here watching that stone be rolled into its little locking position, into its little locking bit, and now it's rolled back. How? What in the world took place? Um, so, verse 4, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Right? Now, hopefully you've got your markers in place because we're going to be back there. Luke 24. Let's see how he reports up to this point. Uh, he says, On the first day of the week, at early dawn, so we're talking about right around sunrise, uh, they, meaning the women that are mentioned at the end of the last chapter, came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. Because remember, they only gave a lick of promise to the preparation of the body on Friday. That's all they had time for. Right? Uh, put some things in there to keep the smell down over the weekend. But today they're going to come back. They're going to open it up, wash the body down with all the appropriate prayers, and do all the anointing of the essential oils and things that are going to go on the body. 
and uh, arrange it appropriately as well, and then they'll close it back, close the wrapping back up with all the things that are in there, and seal it and put it into the lower box underneath, right? Down below the preparation area. That was what their plan was. Uh, but Luke says, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. So same thing that we just heard in Mark. Like, what? What's that about? But there's nobody around. Nobody's here. Uh, so they, when they entered the tomb, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now what did they find? Yeah, there's the collapsed cocoon, right? So it doesn't take very much once you walk in to the tomb. You, know, you have to stoop down, and by the way, the Gospels make that very plain, that you have to stoop down and go into this place. So they stoop down, they go inside, and there in the preparation top is just the clothing. The great clothes collapsed. And they're like, what? Verse number four. While they were perplexed about this. Now, pause there. Go to John. Because something happens when they discover that the body is gone. Well, first they discover the tomb is open. They discover the body is gone before any angels show up. Because have they seen any angels? No. There's no angel sitting up on the top of the stone, is there? Because that angel was just there to open the tomb so that the ladies could get in and scare off the Roman guard. So that only the ladies are going to be able to see the empty tomb. John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. Now, so she started out while it was dark, and she arrives at dawn as the sun is coming up, because she's not by herself, is she? She's in the company of all these other women. Now, why does John only focus on her? Uh, yes, sir. It went out, did it? Okay. All right. We were going to get that microphone. <laughs> I'm just going to leave the podium mic on. Yeah, go ahead and leave it on. Uh, so, all these ladies come to the tomb together. John focuses on Mary Magdalene because he wants to tell the next part of the story about Mary Magdalene. So he's, he's not ignoring the others as if they didn't exist. It's, I want to tell you her story. So, when they saw that the tomb was open. The stone had been rolled away from the tomb. And at least they were able to look in. Maybe a couple of them went inside and saw that the, uh, the body was missing. Mary Magdalene jumps to an immediate conclusion by herself. It says, she ran away and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Who is that? John. John. The guy that's writing the story. And said to them, 
They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So what has she assumed? Somebody has moved the body. Now she doesn't think about how weird it is that they took the body out of the grave clothes, does she? She's not thinking clearly. All she's thinking is, why? Where's his body? Why is it not where we put it? And so she runs off to the apostles to complain and basically say, you guys need to take care of this. So she talks to Simon Peter first. Why? What's that? He's kind of the head of the apostles, isn't he? He's kind of the mouth. Um, he is the kind of the number one of the top three, right? He's not Pope. Okay, let's never get into that weirdness. But he is most certainly the most obvious natural leader of the bunch. That's that's just the reality of it. Who gets to preach the Pentecost sermon? Peter does. Who gets to bring the Gentiles in for the first time by preaching? Peter does. That he's just that type of natural leader. Um, so she tells him, but she also tells John the Apostle. Why him as well? He's not like the Sanhedrin. Your thing is Joseph. He's Jesus' cousin and the man that Jesus put in charge of Mary. And therefore, he's he's the only guy for much that was there on the, other than Joseph and, and uh, Nicodemus, right? John was the only apostle that was in the grave that day when Jesus was what? And he's family. So she tells the head, we're calling the head of the apostles, and the family member, the male family member that should be taking care of these things. Where's the body? It's gone. We don't know what happened to it. Which also helps you understand. She says, we, meaning who? Her and the other ladies. Because when she left, that was the situation. None of them understood what had happened. Alright, so once you get that into your mind that Mary Magdalene is missing on the next part of the lady's story, that will help you. Okay? Any questions up to this point on those sorts of things? Nope. Okay, go to, uh, let's go back to Mark. Mark 16. Uh, verse number five. Keep that. There's another verse I want to repeat from uh, Luke 24 first. Luke 24, three. When they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, which is an idiomatic way of saying, suddenly, two men suddenly stood.
stood near them in dazzling clothing. Now, uh, there is something uh, about the Greek language you need to understand here. Uh, because of what we're going to read in the other one in just a moment. In the Greek language, you can use the word stand as an opposite of sit or lie. Right? But it's also a generic word for was there. Uh, you can see it used in places where it says there were stone pots standing there. Now, is that the way we describe inanimate objects? That they stand? What do we usually say? Yeah, they were setting there. So, when it says here that while the women were basically scratching their head going, what the world's happened here? <clears throat> that suddenly, there were suddenly two guys right there in the room with them. That's the, that's the inner chamber, right? Remember the inner chamber? Let's pretend this is one side of it. And then there's another preparation area over here. It's got a flat top on it. There is the entrance door right here. And then there's like a little chamber here that's got little alcoves in it for the bone boxes. Uh, and then there's a place in between the two prep areas because that's where you need to be able to be to put the body, do your work, and then eventually put it underneath. Okay? So the ladies are all crowded in into this area over here and in this area right here. And then suddenly it says this. Uh, in the Luke passage, it said, Two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. Mark 16, verse number 5. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. So, there's a guy sitting right here. Just suddenly. Now, they're standing there when he suddenly pops into existence. Think about that. Yeah, they were very much alarmed. Now the other guy, because there's actually two of them. Why is there only one mentioned in the Mark account? Because this is the guy that does the talking. And so that's where our focus is. There's actually another guy over here. We see them later in that exact position when Mary shows up. So they're here, some of them looking, and then suddenly there's a guy there, there's a guy there. Just out of the blue. And not just that, they're glowing. Now I think there might have been some screaming at that point. I would scream. There's no doubt. They didn't They did not faint like the like the Roman guards did. Um, it says, uh, let's see. Uh, in the Mark 16, 5 says, they were amazed, uh, which, it's got the idea that they are like, just out and outright disturbed by what just popped into their frame of reference. Uh, in the Luke account, Luke uh, 24, 5, the women were terrified, and this time the word is about fear, internal fear. 
uh, and they bowed their faces to the ground, which basically means they got down on their knees and ducked their heads. It was a duck and cover situation, right? And um, then the men started talking to them. The one guy on the right-hand side uh, starts talking to him. Now, this is where it gets really hard because we've got all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, tell us what these guys said, or the, what the one guy says, but threading it together into the exact order sometimes is a little troublesome. So this is what we're going to do. We'll go to the Matthew account first. We'll read what is said there. And then we'll go to Mark, and then we'll go to Luke and read what's said there in bits. Okay? Matthew 28, 5. The angel said to the woman, women, do not be afraid. Now, how often is that the first thing out of an angel's mouth? Pretty often. <laughs> Pretty often. But why? They're scary. They are scary because... Well, first of all, they can pop in out of nowhere, like these guys did, and they glow with the glory of God. And if it's a seraphim or a garabim, yeah, they look really weird. These angels, though, seem to have human form. They don't have angel wings. Okay? They seem to be in human form. Um, we know that because it talks about looking like a young man over in the market camp. Don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. So, chill, because I know why you're here. He is not here, meaning here, where you put him, for he has risen just as he said. Right? Come, see the place where he's lying. Now, that's probably to the ladies over here in the alcove area. Just come on. Come up close. Have a look here. Get a good look. He's not here because he said he wouldn't be here today. Uh, now, we'll pause there. Go to the Mark account. Mark 16.6. He said, Do not be amazed. So he's using the same word that came in the previous verse there, in Mark. So don't be all out of sorts. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. So it's again the same sort of thing. He's not here because he said he wouldn't be here today. And I want you to double check for yourself. Come right up here. Feel free. Go ahead and push on the gray clothes. He's not in there. He is gone. He is resurrected just like he said he would. Luke's account. Uh, Luke uh, 24, 5. The men said to them, of course, it's only one of them talking. 
Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Now that's a little bit of a dig, isn't it? A little bit of a, a chastisement, verbal, verbal, why are you here today? Why are you looking for the living one where dead people are found? Meaning, you should have known better, correct? Isn't, isn't that how you would take it? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Now that's interesting to me. Because when you go to the accounts, in Galilee, Jesus started telling his apostles those exact words about six months ago. Now we understand that he's been telling it not just simply to the 12 guys that have been traveling around with him. He's been telling it to the ladies too. He's been telling it to the entire group that have been traveling around with him. And so, it says in verse 8, they remembered his words. So, the angel gets after him, and they start thinking about it. Oh my goodness, that is what he meant. He really meant it when he said he was going to be crucified and resurrected on the third day. Now, we, we're still puzzled about that whole thing, aren't we? All of us here, how could you hear all of that and not have believed it literally? In all of that, I still, in my head, think of Mary, Mother of Jesus, separately. Because she's already been spoken to by angels. Yep. And as she goes through her son's ministry and everything, and she watches and sees all that happen as a mother, I would be holding on to it. I know. That, that, that's what you want to think for Mary, but yet she is here today to do what? Finish the funeral. She's in the group to finish the funeral. Um, I always think at this point, on this particular topic, of a man that came to Jesus for a miracle. And Jesus said to him, do you believe that I can do this? And the man's response was, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's right. I, I'm, like, I'm like above 50% in my belief range, but I'm not close to 60 yet or 70 or whatever it would take. Wouldn't you have to confess that you find yourself in that same situation at times in your life? I trust God. God, help me to trust you more than I trust you. Right? It makes me think of Peter walking on the water. We oh, think, yes. You know, we, we think, oh, Peter, you didn't have enough faith to walk on the water. I mean, I would have a hard time getting on the water. Peter actually walked in the water a few steps. Remember that. And that's right. It says in that story that he got out of the boat and was walking to the Lord and then he began to look 
at the wind and the waves around him, and he immediately began to sink and cried out, Lord, help me! Right? And Jesus picks him up and gets him into the boat and says, to all the guys, where's your faith? He actually, he, he coined a term, it seems, that he called his apostles from time to time. Oh, you little faiths. You little faiths. The people who want to criticize Peter for, you know, sinking in the water, I think they need to knock it off and start thinking about how he took steps on the water first. So, you know, give him his dues before you use it as an illustration for, you know, not having 100% faith like we need to have. Uh, but yeah, all of these guys... They've had a hard time over the last six months trying to make sense of the pre-gospel story where Jesus keeps telling them, yeah, we're going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be abused, I'm going to be condemned, I will be crucified, but I will resurrect from the dead on the third day, meet me in Galilee. So he told them all of that repeatedly, and the ladies heard it. And yet, even after most of that had already happened, exactly as he said, they still couldn't quite bring themselves to believe the, the climax, the literal bodily resurrection. It, it's, it's problematic for all of us when we find ourselves in a stress situation to not follow up with the faith like we should. You know, I'm constantly harping at everybody. You need to memorize 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation or testing time has come upon you except that which is common to all mankind. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond what you're able. And with that testing or that will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure. And yet I find myself, when I get into tough moments, forgetting I've got to pay attention to what I've been taught. Don't give in. Don't think this is the end of the world. It can't be more than what I can handle, because that's what Jesus said. And yet, myself, my body wants to go, I can't handle this! Right? We need, we need to feed faith. How do you feed faith? Reading the scripture and praying are the two big ways of feeding faith, I think. Uh, and practice. If you practice your faith well in little things, that will help you get better at it in some of the bigger things. Yeah, uh, having the fellowship of the saints, uh, the assembling of the saints, uh, where we encourage each other to love and convenience, um, this is an, it's an imperative part of it as well, because um, we need people cheering us on. Uh, you know, this 
last week on the radio program, I was kind of wrapping up the book of Hebrews, and one of the things that we were dealing with was the faith chapter. Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, chapter number 12 starts with a sports analogy about this whole idea that since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and it's clearly a reference to people gathering around a sporting event, racing in particular, foot racing, and they're all cheering on the remaining runners, saying, you can do it! Hang in there! Push! 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 Cross the finish line! Right? That's what everybody's doing. And the way that the writer in Hebrews presents it is, everybody in the audience at that point had already finished their race ahead of you. And they're all cheering you on to continue in your life. And number one amongst those in the audience, at the tape, waiting for you to keep going, is Jesus himself, who ran his race to death and then to life. He said, come on! Come on, I started and I finished it, you can do it. And so that's why the Fellowship of the Saints is important faith. Because we need that cheering on to not get in. And so, yeah, uh, we look at these guys here and we can see that they had a hard time. And instead of critiquing them over and over again, we need to learn from them that if they could have a hard time with it, we could certainly have a hard time with it too, unless we take action to get better at it. And so, um, yeah, pay attention and, and, and do what we need to do. Okay, so... Uh, we will go back to, let's go in reverse order, let's go to Mark 16, 7, for the last little bit of what the angels said. Verse number 7, but go, tell his disciples, and specifically Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, there you will see him, just as he told you. So now that they have experienced the gospel message, Christ is risen, what are they supposed to do with that message? They're going to pass it on. They're going to pass it on specifically to the disciples, the apostles. And amongst them, Peter needs to hear. Really needs to hear. Uh, because he's the one that Jesus had said on the night of the betrayal, you're going to deny me, but when you have turned around, you need to strengthen your brothers and get them turned around. So Peter is going to be the one that's supposed to take the lead on getting these disciples out of the deep blue funk they're in uh, and believe the gospel. Okay? Uh, the authentic gospel of Mark ends in verse 8. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them and they had nothing they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now why do we say that's where the authentic gospel part ends? Because all the rest of the verses in our Bibles, more than likely yours is in a bracket 
or it's at the bottom of the page in a footnote. I would put it in the bottom of the page in a footnote because I do not believe that verses 9 through the end of the chapter are authentic to the Gospel of Mark. I would be very strong on that. In fact, it includes, those verses include an absolute contradiction of the Gospel of Luke. Well, when uh, you go back and chase it all down, it seems as if somehow the Gospel of Luke had another ending to it that disappeared. We don't know how. We, excuse me, Mark. We know that when scrolls are written, they're rolled up, and the last part of the letter or the document is on the outer shelf. So it's possible that something happened. We don't know. Uh, you will find, more than likely in your footnotes, that there are shorter endings to it uh, that are found out there uh, that um, will basically just say that eventually they go to the apostles and they tell them. That's it. Uh, so my guess is, and this is the guess of a lot of commentators, is that somebody didn't like the fact that it ended at verse number 8. And so they took what they thought was a summary of all the other Gospels and wrote it out and added it. Now that's an example of somebody trying to be helpful but ending up not being helpful. Do we have examples of that in Scripture? Yes. And so um, I never preach or teach from those last verses because I do not think they're Mark's. I don't think they're Holy Spirit inspired. And if I were translating a um, Bible, they wouldn't be in my Bible because they don't belong there. Yeah, because they're, they're not in the earliest manuscripts at all. And uh, so Mark's Gospel ends, though, with the ladies being still very upset and leaving the tomb, right? Now, go over to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, verse 7. Go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Now that's pretty much what we just read in Mark, right? You need to get out there and tell the disciples. Peter's not mentioned in this one, but all those apostles, tell them to do what? Go to Galilee. So that's two Gospels made it very plain. These guys are not supposed to be hanging around here. This is the first day of the week. They need to be on the road heading to Galilee. Today. Now. So that Jesus can meet with them there later. He had even given them a very specific place to go. It says that he told them to go and meet him on a mountain or a hill in Galilee. Uh, I suspect that it is the hill just above Capernaum uh, where he appointed them as apostles. That would make good sense. Uh, so verse 8 tells us pretty much the same thing that we just read in Mark. They left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. So they're very upset and they're like, what are we supposed to do? Well, we probably ought to tell the disciples. And it seems as if they're having a conversation amongst themselves about what they should do next. They're a little bit up in the air about it. 
And that's when Jesus appears to them for the very first time as a resurrected Lord and Savior and gives them even more impetus. Go, tell my disciples. So it says, Behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. Basically, Shalom. They ran up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. So they are down on the ground, grabbing him around the ankles and treating him as divine. Does that seem appropriate? Absolutely. What's that? Uh, I don't know if Jesus is glowing at this point with his glory. We do know that he looks different in some form or fashion than he looked when he was first resurrected, when he was in his body before the resurrection. And I'm going to give you some speculation. We're running out of time on this, so we'll be coming back to this passage next week. Um, we know that the apostles later, when they meet him themselves, are still like not absolutely certain it's him. Even after they're given the opportunity to touch his body and look at the prince and all that, because he offers them that the night of his resurrection. So there's something about him that is different than the last time they saw him before the crucifixion. In the book of Revelation, let me just turn there. Book of Revelation chapter number one. There is a description of the resurrected Jesus. Chapter 1, verse number 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded around his, across his chest with a golden sash. Now listen to this part. His hair, his head and his hair, were white like wool, like snow. Now, when it says his head, it's talking about not just the hair of his head, but his beard. Now, you've heard me say before that Jesus was approaching his 40th year of life whenever he was crucified. Do 40-year-olds have totally white hair and beards, usually? Yeah, that's not typical. I mean, you'll start getting your little salt and pepper effect a lot of times in your 30s. Right? But that full-on white-gray beard doesn't pop in until you're pretty old. So I think it is possible that one of the reasons that Jesus looks different to these guys is because this is who they're seeing. They're seeing the Jesus of the Revelation in his resurrected body. Now, what does white hair symbolize in most cultures? Wisdom and age that comes from wisdom. And so it just may be, this is me speculating for you guys, right? it just may be that Jesus 
has chosen that his resurrected body is going to look fit and trim and strong and vital, but bear the markings of age, wisdom, with that full white beard and hair. But he also chooses one other thing that our resurrection bodies won't have. That is, scars from our past life. Because his resurrected body has prints where the nails were in. And a place, whichever side it was, where the spirit went in. Yeah. White is also a sign of purity. That is correct. So, so as these ladies meet Jesus, I, I think that's how you should picture him. He looks like a very vital man in his 30s, but with totally white hair and beard and the marks of crucifixion. Not at first, apparently. And then he, once he speaks out to them, because we'll notice this with Mary too, once Jesus greets them, that's when they realize who he is. You remember Jesus says this, my sheep know my voice. It's when Jesus speaks, the ladies figure it out. Okay, we've, we've totally run out of time with that. So chew on that for a week and you can come back and ask questions at the very beginning. Make speculations and things like that. Father, we thank you for these gospel writers at the prompting of your Holy Spirit to get these things written down so that we can believe the gospel. So that we have these clear, trustworthy eyewitness accounts that Jesus not only died for our sins, but he rose again bodily on the third day according to his own promises, according to scripture, and that he is ever living now as our faithful high priest, our Lord, our Savior. Help us as we're coming up on the season where we uh, uh, memorialize his death and his resurrection. Let us believe it and live it and share it. It's in Christ's name we ask your help as we go into our worship service. Amen.